Good morning. Uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and we might talk a little openly uh, about another topic before we introduce you, but thank you so much for being here. We, uh, as you know, introduced legislation last night uh, to update uh, and replace the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs um, a week in advance of when we planned uh, to have a markup. Um, Senator Menendez and I talked at the last hearing about the best way to make sure members um, were up to date. I, I do want to point out that just this Congress, we had a hearing on June the 20th that uh, about authorizations for the use of military force with Bellinger and Hicks. On August the 2nd, we had a closed hearing with Secretary Tillis, Tillerson and Secretary Mattis on the same topic, August 2nd. On October 30th, we had the authorization to use of military force administration's perspective, excuse me, by Secretary Tillerson and Secretary Mattis. And then on December 13th, um, we, we had another hearing with Senator, with Stephen Hadley, Christine Warmoth, and John Bellinger. It was those hearings that then developed the principles that I then gave to Senator Cardin, okay, at that time. Okay, and that's what we've been working off to, to create an AUMF. So those hearings created the body of work that we now have. In addition, since I've been the, the lead Republican, we had a hearing on, in 2015 with Secretary Kerry, Secretary Carter, uh, and General Dempsey. Uh, we had one in December 2014 with Secretary Kerry. Uh, and we had one, again, May 21st, 2014, with Stephen Preston and, and Mary McLeod. So when we did the bipartisan Syria AUMF, we had a working meeting where we all sat down and went through it, and people were able to talk openly about it. That's what we propose to do here on Wednesday, to have an all-members meeting, staff meeting, sit in a, in a room and walk through it, just like we did last time we did a bipartisan AUMF which would give people time to write amendments uh, before amendment deadlines. So to me, I, 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 having another hearing felt like, to me, I know it isn't, I've talked to Senator Menendez since, felt like a stall tactic when, when really we've, we've hearing this thing to death. The hearings are what developed the pr principles that caused us to come to this bipartisan agreement. So I hear you. But I can't imagine, we've got a week, the text is out. Um, I'm glad to spend however many hours people want to spend on Wednesday walking through in a closed session. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I guess I'm not understanding. When we did the, the Syria, when we wrote it that day and passed it. Let me say one more time. We wrote it that day and passed it. So I guess I'm confused as to why this appears, feels to be rushed. Mr. Chairman, if I may. Of course. Mr. Chairman, uh, you know, we uh, have a history of working collaboratively with you, uh, but an AUMF is the single most significant vote, an authorization for the use of military force is the single most significant vote a member of Congress can take because it is about sending and committing our sons and daughters to war and actions and uh, risking their lives. So it's a very momentous occasion. Now, uh, I have, I appreciate the chairman's recital of uh, hearings that have been had in concept about what an AUMF should look like. 
But the reality is we have had hearing specifics on a specified AUMF to be marked up before we actually voted on it. I think we, we got the final version last night, and it seems to me that the full implications and details of the text should be publicly vetted before a vote that the Congress is not creating unintended consequences or ways the AUMF could be misused in the future, as some of us believe the ones in 2001 and 2002 have been used. I think the administration should be heard on it. It must take responsibility for executing war and sharing their views on the text. And right now, we don't have their views at all. We did when we voted on those other ones. And I think the American people deserve the opportunity to hear the full arguments about the implications of the text, since it involves sending their sons and daughters into war for possibly many years to come. Now, um, I, I think that uh, our request for a hearing is, is not stalling, as I have said to you public, uh, privately, and I'll say here publicly, I have no problem getting to a markup on an AUMF. I have cast votes uh, for AUMFs, uh, so I'm not uh, fearful of having a determination when I think the AUMF is a correct one, I will cast for it, and when I think it's improper or not probably uh, drafted, I will vote against it. But I think this is the singular most important thing we can do, and I don't think it's, it's an inordinate amount of time to get uh, some uh, some uh, thoughts, uh, both from the administration as well as from non-administration witnesses, all can be done at one hearing in one day, and then members could think about the testimony they've heard on the specific AUMF that is being voted on, and you know have an opportunity to prepare their amendments should they believe there should be some. I mean, I, I, I compliment you and Senator Kane on trying to come to a draft that uh, seeks to move the issue forward. But I think this is a, a, a momentous vote, and I think it needs the appropriate attention. So it's not about stalling, let's get that straight. It's about a thoughtful consideration of what this specific AUMF says, what it means, looking at all the implications of it, coming to an understanding of it, and then thoughtfully being able to draft amendments and cast a final vote. And that's, I think I express the concern of many of my members on my side who feel that way, and so that's, um, that's, that's why I wrote you the letter that I did. Well, let me see if I can get an administration official up here on Wednesday, and, uh, and we'll see what we can do. And I think we might actually be better off having them uh, maybe even in, down in the SCIF, which is what we did on Syria piece where we, I, I don't care where we do it, but, uh, and, then, and then obviously when we have a markup, the public will be watching and everyone can understand the implications. But let me see what I can do about uh, potentially having uh, someone from the administration here on Wednesday to, to walk through. Um, if I would urge you uh, to be very good to have an administration witness, and from my perspective, I believe most of it can be done in public. Uh, we're not talking about actions specific. Uh, and, and secondly, I would urge you to consider uh, some uh, analysis outside of the administration of the specific text. All could be done at the same time, and uh, I think that would be a good way to move forward. Duly noted, and uh, we'll see where it goes. We'll keep talking. I, I Again, I can't, I want to say one more time, I doubt there's ever been as many hearings in advance to develop principles to bring people together around an AUMF in advance. Uh, this is actually, there's been so much preparatory work done on this, 
Um, I think people understand the implications. We've talked about all of these things publicly, but I hear you and I understand you have members of your caucus uh, that are pushing for that to occur and I realize that. So I thank you for the way you work with us. Most of the time. We feel the same way about you, Mr. Chairman, most of the time. I know you do, I know you do, I know you do. Uh, so with love, uh, we thank Acting Assist Assistant Secretary Satterfield, Assistant Secretary Karam, and Mr. Jenkins for joining us here today. This hearing will examine U.S. policy towards Yemen, particularly in light of the growing concern within Congress regarding the Civil War and its dire humanitarian circumstances, consequences. According to the United Nations, more than 22 million people, roughly three-quarters of the population, need humanitarian aid and protection, and 18 million people are food insecure. Last year, there were over one million suspect suspected cases of cholera. While Yemen has always faced significant socioeconomic challenges, the Civil War, which began with the Houthis, armed takeover of much of the country in 2014 and their overthrow of Yemen's legitimate government in January 2015 has plunged the country into a humanitarian crisis. Iran's support of the Houthi rebels and the intervention of Saudi-led forces to restore Yemen's deposed government, which began in March of 2015, have been particularly devastating. In over, in over three years of conflict, thousands of civilians have been killed. Errant airstrikes have hit schools, weddings, and hospitals. Humanitarian groups cannot reliably provide aid due to movement constraints and uncertain port access has slowed commercial imports of food and fuel. Of course, Saudi Arabia is a longtime U.S. partner, but partners must be candid with each other. So I have raised my concerns regarding as many people here have, Saudi Arabia's conduct in Yemen with senior Saudi officials, including the Crown Prince, on multiple occasions in this last year. I know that many of my colleagues have done the same things as I've mentioned, and I urge them to continue doing so, as I will. But at the same time, Saudi Arabia has a right to defend itself from war spilling across its border. For nearly, nearly two years, the Houthis have fired Iranian-manufactured ballistic missiles into Saudi territory. In recent months, they've aimed these missiles at Riyadh. At least hundreds of Saudis have been killed in the fighting and millions live under constant threat of attack. So revolving the conflict in Yemen means helping Saudi Arabia address its legitimate security concerns to prevent entrenchment of an Iranian armed group on its southern border. As the committee considers ways to support effective U.S. policy on Yemen, I look forward to hearing our witnesses provide details on what the U.S. is doing diplomatically to encourage resolution of the conflict. I also hope our witnesses will explain the nature of U.S. support to the Saudi-led coalition, including relevant authorities, and what can be done to address the humanitarian situation. With that, I ask Ranking Member if he wishes to make any opening comments. I'm sure he does, and I look forward to hearing those. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, for convening this important hearing uh, and inviting witnesses from the State and Defense Departments as well as USAID. Given our committee's jurisdiction over the execution of U.S. foreign policy in the State Department in particular, it's fundamentally necessary that we receive testimony from the very administration officials executing that policy and not just outside experts. Last month marked the third anniversary of the current conflict in Yemen. Statistics of the scale of the human suffering defy imagination. 22.2 million Yemenis, more than 80% of the entire population, require humanitarian assistance. 
the loss of more than 50% of Yemen's nighttime electricity, a key condition for maintaining hospitals, water supply systems, and communications. Eight million Yemenis are on the brink of starvation, the largest cholera outbreak in modern history. This hearing is particularly timely given the debate the Senate recently held on the U.S. military support to the Saudi-led coalition. This hearing is also relevant given the visit of the new U.N. Special Envoy for Yemen, Martin Griffiths, to the U.N. Security Council yesterday to brief on Yemen as well as the reports of a new Saudi coalition offensive. As we consider U.S. policy on Yemen, we do so in a regional context, acknowledging U.S. relations with critical partners. Saudi Arabia has endured Scud and ballistic missile attacks from Yemen on a scale that no American would ever accept. Iranian-backed Houthi fighters have launched attacks aimed at Saudi populations, economic infrastructure, and defense installations. There have also been attacks aimed at U.S. naval craft. This is unacceptable, dangerous, and counter to U.S. interests. The threats coming from Yemen did not suddenly appear, but after years of brewing tensions between various factions within Yemen, Iranian fingerprints are all over the escalation in the Houthi illicit terrorist activities. To be clear, the terrorist threat in Yemen does not excuse the conduct of the Saudi coalition, which bears significant responsibility for the scale of civilian casualties and damage to civilian infrastructure. But there are other actors and stakeholders in this conflict, including Iran, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS, and all are implicated in violations of the law of armed conflict international humanitarian law, and human rights abuses. Instead of a comprehensive strategy to push back on Iranian malign interference in Yemen and the spoiler role that Russia is playing, as I have pointed out in numerous other contexts, this administration is actively dismantling the State Department, underfunding our, underfunding our assistance programs, uh, the very entities that have the potential to play critical roles in moving towards a political settlement and addressing the humanitarian crisis. Last month, the Senate debated one element of U.S. policy, the provision of limited military support, including refueling intelligence and advice to the Saudi coalition. I appreciate the commitment of Senators Lee, Sanders, and Murphy in calling for a debate and vote on that one element. In explaining my vote against discharging the resolution from the committee, I encourage my colleagues to expand the aperture of the debate. I want to understand our broader operations and policy objectives before seeking to end or change just one element. Absent a compelling articulation of how continued U.S. military support to the coalition is leveraging movement towards a political track to negotiate and negotiation to end the war, it is reasonable to expect that the next vote on U.S. military support may have a different outcome. Specifically, what steps is the administration taking diplomatically and politically to end the war? What types of assistance are appropriate in assisting our partners in the legitimate defense needs? What is the administration doing to alleviate the worst humanitarian crisis in the world? And what more can the Saudi-led coalition do? Given the increasing lethality and sophistication of Iranian support to the Houthis in Yemen, how does the conflict in Yemen factor into the administration's strategy to counter Iran? Finally, I'd like to hear some clear statements from our witnesses as whether there is a military solution to this conflict. And unless our witnesses are going to surprise us with a new announcement, the answer has been for years and continues to be no. Finally, Mr. Chairman, it would be difficult to consider this hearing without addressing the administration's actions in Syria over the weekend. In my view, what connects this weekend's military strikes against Assad's chemical weapons facilities and this administration's approach to Yemen 
is the alarming absence of a strategy. President Trump's over-reliance on the military arm of our government, coupled with his antagonizing, defunding, and dismantling of our diplomatic and assistance arms, will lead to only one dangerous outcome, that we will have nothing left other than military force to address conflict and promote our interests. I'm not opposed to the appropriate and authorized use of military force, but before we send our uniformed men and women into battle and ask them to be prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice, we should always be able to tell them and the American people what the stakes are and that we have exhausted our diplomatic tools. I'm still waiting for the broad articulation of strategy in the region and understanding how U.S. military support to the Saudi coalition is helping us in moving towards the ultimate goal of a negotiated settlement that prioritizes saving lives and ending the suffering of innocent Yemeni civilians. And I hope today's hearing can help us understand that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Our first witness is Acting Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, Ambassador David Satterfield. Ambassador Satterfield is one of the most distinguished, one of our most distinguished diplomats. He most recently served as Director General of the Multinational Force and Observers in the Sinai Peninsula and previously served as U.S. Ambassador to Lebanon. Thank you for being here. Our second witness is Robert Jenkins, who serves as the Deputy Assistant Administrator for USAID's Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance. Mr. Jenkins recently marked 20 years at USAID and previously served as the Director of Office of Transition Initiatives. Thank you for being here. And our third witness, witness is Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Robert Karam. Very protocol oriented. You want to make sure our civilian guys were first. I want you all to know that. Priority to, prior to his Senate confirmation last year, Mr. Karam served as National Security of Staff, Security Staff of Vice President Cheney, and this, then as National Security Advisor to the House, Majority Leaders Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy. We thank you all three for being here. Um, if you would, if you could summarize in about five minutes, we'd appreciate it. If you have any written materials that you'd like to be a part of the record, we will make them so. And with that, if you would just go in the order introduced, we'd appreciate it. And again, thank you. Thank you very much, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. Uh, appreciate this opportunity once again to appear to testify on this important subject. And I would ask that the submitted written remarks be entered into the record. Without objection. Defeating. ISIS in Yemen, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, countering Iran's malign activities in that region, and above all, reducing the extraordinary suffering and hardship of the Yemeni people, all of these goals hinge on the resolution to the Yemeni conflict. To that end, the United States firmly believes that the only possible solution to this conflict is a negotiated political settlement under U.S. auspices. I want to be clear on this point. Our military support to the Saudi-led coalition advances important U.S. national security and diplomatic objectives. Further, Iran's support, its provision of sophisticated weaponry to the Houthis, both exacerbates this conflict and its attendant suffering and advances Iran's regional ambitions. The Houthis have repeatedly used Iranian ballistic missile and cruise missile technology and as we saw as recently as April 11th, have targeted Riyadh's international airport, Aramco facilities, and Red Sea shipping lanes. U.S. military support 
serves a clear and strategic purpose to reinforce Saudi and Emirati self-defense in the face of intensifying Houthi and Iranian-enabled threats and to expand the capability of our Gulf partners to push back against Iran's regionally destabilizing actions. This support in turn provides the United States access and influence to help press for a political solution to the conflict. Should we curtail U.S. military support, the Saudis could well pursue defense relationships with countries that have no interest in either ending the humanitarian crisis, minimizing civilian casualties, or assisting in facilitating progress towards a political solution. Critical U.S. access to support for our own campaign against violent extremists could be placed in jeopardy. Through diplomatic and military-to-military -military engagements, we regularly emphasize the strategic importance and legal obligations to comply with the law of armed conflict, including the obligation to take all reasonable precautions to reduce the risk of harm to civilians. And we assess that progress has been made as a result of our engagement and efforts over the past six months. During his meeting with President Trump, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman agreed that a political resolution of this conflict is ultimately necessary to bring greater stability to the region and to meet the needs of the Yemeni people. The new UN Special Envoy to Yemen, Martin Griffiths, has just completed initial consultations with the key parties to the conflict, and we are welcoming him in the State Department very shortly. I and my colleagues will be meeting with him for a discussion of where he sees how we assess next steps to resolution of the conflict. Our goal collectively is to create a framework before entering into comprehensive negotiations, which the UN would then convene. When those formal negotiations do begin, it's important to note, Saudi Arabia does have vital national security concerns that have to be addressed by the Houthis. The Saudis will have to make compromises of their own, and we have been quite clear on this point. The Houthis will likely retain a political role in Yemen. That is a fact, and it has to be reflected in any negotiating process. And a durable commitment to peace will have to involve the buy-in of all key Yemeni parties. We all agree the humanitarian crisis in Yemen is unacceptable. The U.S. and its allies have worked assiduously over the past six months to lead the coalition led by the Saudis to take positive steps on this subject. And last month, the Saudis and Emiratis provided nearly $1 billion to Yemen's humanitarian response appeal. On January 22nd, the Saudi-led coalition announced elements of a plan that envisages the expanded use of other ports beyond Hodeidah and Salif and overland points of entry to broaden options for importing humanitarian assistance and commercial goods into Yemen. We support this. More has to be done. And we are pressing the Saudis and the coalition to take additional steps to facilitate and expedite access to the port of Hodeidah. We will do all in our power to assure humanitarian and commercial needs are met in Yemen so that this crisis from its humanitarian standpoint can be alleviated to the maximum extent possible. And I thank you again for the opportunity to respond to your questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mr. Jenkins. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to speak here today alongside my distinguished colleagues from State and the Department of Defense. I'd ask that our written comments be submitted for the record. Administrator Green likes to paraphrase your fellow Senator John McCain when he asks our agency, 
The world is on fire. What are we going to do about it? At USAID, we strive to put out those fires. Unfortunately, right now, Yemen is the single largest humanitarian crisis in the world, and we're working hard to put the fires out there, along with our interagency colleagues, other donors, and our partners on the ground. The humanitarian crisis in Yemen is man-made. The current conflict has been ongoing for more than three years. Violence between the Houthis and the Yemeni government, both backed by military support from regional powers, has devolved into a civil war among multiple factions. Meanwhile, more than 75% of the country, or more than 22 million people, need humanitarian assistance. To put that in perspective, that's more than the combined populations of Tennessee, New Jersey, and Indiana. For nearly four years, Yemen has wavered on the edge of famine. 17.8 million Yemenis are food insecure, including more than 460,000 children who are severely malnourished. Food that does make it inside is prohibitively expensive, and as over half the population is unemployed, this dramatically affects what basics people can afford, basics such as food and water. Many Yemenis must resort to increasingly severe coping mechanisms, such as child marriage, just to get by. This food crisis is made worse by the fact that Yemen is currently facing the world's largest cholera outbreak, with more than one million suspected cases due to contaminated drinking water, unsafe hygiene practices, a lack of sanitation services, and a crippled healthcare system. The conflict has also led to the collapse of the economy, which was already one of the poorest in the region. The government hasn't been able to regularly fund the operating budgets of key ministries, like the Ministry of Health, degrading basic services like medical care, sanitation, and education. <coughs> in the face of these needs, the United States continues to mount a robust humanitarian response, working with our partners to reach millions with life-saving aid. Over the last six months, our partner, WFP, has reached an average of seven million people each month with emergency food assistance. We also worked to deliver four US-funded cranes to the port of Hudaydah, which was badly damaged by the conflict. USAID is supporting medical services to people in need. We're also providing hygiene kits, safe drinking water, and improved access to sanitation services to fight malnutrition and stave off disease. For children especially, the toll of conflict can have lasting effects. Our mobile protection teams provide treatment to children throughout the country. USAID is also providing technical assistance to the Central Bank of Yemen to help restore basic functionality of core services. We're also rehabilitating water systems, getting children back to school, and providing school supplies. In addition, the U.S. coordinates closely with other donors, including the United Kingdom, the European Union, and we, we particularly welcome the recent pledges from Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Kuwait of more than $1 billion towards the humanitarian response in Yemen. Despite our best, our best efforts, access remains a major challenge in Yemen. To reach people in need, relief workers must navigate active conflict zones, checkpoints, bureaucratic impediments, and heavily damaged infrastructure. 
The vast majority of goods come through Yemen's ports, so their operations are critical for both humanitarian and commercial goods. We continue to call on all parties in the conflict to allow free and unfettered access for humanitarian goods into and throughout Yemen in order to save lives and reduce suffering. While the United States remains committed to relieving the suffering of the Yemeni people, humanitarian alone cannot solve this conflict. This will only come through a comprehensive political agreement. We look forward to a day when there's a lasting political solution in Yemen that will allow the fighting to end and enable the country to develop its own path to self-reliance. Addressing the complex crisis in, in Yemen requires all of our government's tools, humanitarian assistance, and the three Ds of development, diplomacy, and defense. That's why I'm grateful you've called all of us here today, and I'm happy to take your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Secretary Karam. Uh, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee, um, thank you for the opportunity to testify here today. As a former uh, Senate and House staffer, it's a particular honor to get to appear before you, although I must say it's somewhat more uh, nerve-wracking to appear on this side of the dais. Um, uh, I would ask that my uh, prepared uh, opening statement be introduced for the record, um, but have what is, I hope, a mercifully brief uh, uh, introductory comment to make. Yeah. Um, as Secretary Mattis uh, has said many times, our uh, goal in Yemen uh, is an end to the conflict um, through a United Nations brokered settlement. The conflict in Yemen affects regional security across the Middle East uh, and threatens U.S. national security interests, including the free flow of commerce in the Red Sea. Just this month, uh, the Houthis attacked a Saudi oil tanker in the Red Sea, threatening commercial shipping and freedom of navigation in the world's fourth busiest maritime choke point, the Bab al-Mandeb. This conflict has unleashed a humanitarian toll on Yemeni civilians, as my colleagues from the State Department and USAID have already mentioned. This is why Secretary Mattis believes strongly uh, that the efforts of the new UN Special Envoy, Martin Griffiths, to bring all sides of the conflict to the negotiating table are so important. Indeed, we need a stable, inclusive government in Yemen to provide security to the Yemeni people and to reduce and ultimately eliminate terrorist safe havens that are being used by al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, and ISIS in Yemen. A political solution to the Yemen conflict will also reduce the chaos that Iran has exploited to advance its malign agenda. With help from Iran, the Houthis have launched more than 100 ballistic missiles and countless rockets into Saudi Arabia, directed at major population centers, international airports, military installations, and oil infrastructure. Uh, in the last month alone, um, the Houthis have launched more than 13 ballistic missiles and long-range rockets uh, into Saudi Arabia. Mr. Chairman, uh, I would invite you and all of the members of the committee uh, to visit the Iranian material display uh, at Joint Base Anacostia Bowling to see firsthand uh, the Iranian-manufactured ballistic missile that was launched at Riyadh International Airport in November 2017, as well as other evidence of Iran's support to the Houthis and its efforts to destabilize the region. Yemen has become a testbed for Iran's uh, malign activities. Mr. Chairman, the Defense Department is currently engaged in two lines of effort in Yemen. Our first line of effort and our priority is the fight against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and ISIS in Yemen, two terrorist organizations that directly threaten the United States, our allies, and our partners. To combat AQIP, AQAP, and ISIS, 
U.S. forces, in coordination with the UN-recognized government of Yemen, are supporting our regional counterterrorism partners in ongoing operations to disrupt and dis degrade their ability to coordinate, plot, and recruit for external terrorist operations. Additionally, U.S. military forces are conducting airstrikes against AQAP and ISIS in Yemen, pursuant to the 2001 uh, authorization for the use of military force to disrupt and destroy terrorist network networks. Our second line of effort is the provision of limited non-combat support to the Saudi-led coalition in support of the UN-recognized government of Yemen. This support began in 2015 under President Obama, and in 2017, President Trump reaffirmed America's commitment to our partners in these efforts. Fewer than 50 U.S. military personnel work in Saudi Arabia with the Saudi-led coalition, advising and assisting with the defense of Saudi territory, sharing intelligence, and providing logistical support including aerial refueling. The objective of this support is to build our partners' capacity and enable them to defend themselves and maintain their own security. As I noted before, Houthi missile attacks pose a very real threat to Saudi Arabia and the UAE and to freedom of navigation in the Red Sea. The Houthi rebellion, facilitated by Iran, also continues to pose a threat to the Yemeni people. In addition to exacerbating the civil conflict, the Houthis use child soldiers disrupt and commandeer the distribution of humanitarian aid and commercial goods, and exploit the deliveries of aid for their own financial purposes. With regard to non-combatant casualties, U.S. military support to our partners is always geared towards mitigating non-combatant casualties. U.S. advisors provide best practices on avoiding collateral damage, and U.S. aerial refueling allows coalition aircraft to spend more time in the air, giving our partners time to validate targets, practice tactical patience, um, and reduce the risk of non-combatant casualties. We also continue to urge the coalition to allow full access to humanitarian and commercial goods and are encouraged by recent steps of our that our partners have taken to provide more than $1 billion in humanitarian relief. Thank you again for the opportunity to testify. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for being here. And with that, um, I'll defer for interjections along the way, Senator Cardin. Well, thank you. I want to thank all three of our witnesses from State USAID and Department of Defense for, for your work. Uh, you have outlined goals for the United States, including ending the Civil War through diplomacy, because as you point out, that's the only way we're going to have a lasting peace in Yemen. The security of our partners, uh, particularly the, uh, the security of, of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and uh, to recognize the Iran malign influence in dealing with that and addressing humanitarian crisis, including civilian casualties and the response to the civilian population. So, Mr. Karm, I want to start with you um, in regards to the U.S. military assistance that we give to the kingdom. You said that is to embolden their capacity and to reduce noncombatant casualties. Last March, the SITCOM commander, General Vodal, stated that the United States government does not track the end results of the coalition missions it refuels and supports with targeting assistance. So my question to you is, how do you determine that we are effectively reducing the non-combatant casualties if we don't, in fact, track the results of the kingdom's military actions. Uh, Senator, thank you. Um, 
it's correct that we do not monitor and track all of the Saudi aircraft um, uh, aloft over Yemen. Uh, we have limited personnel uh, and assets uh, in order to do that. Uh, and CENTCOM's focus has obviously been on our own operations in Afghanistan, uh, in Iraq, and in Syria. I understand that. So, but my question is, our stated mission is to reduce non-combatant casualties. If we don't track, how do we determine that? So I think one of our stated missions is precisely that. Um, there are multiple ways that I think we do have insight into uh, Saudi uh, targeting behavior. Um, we have helped them with their processes. Um, we have seen them implement a no-strike list. Um, and we have seen their, their, their uh, capabilities uh, improve. So the information improve. is based upon what the Saudis tell you how they're conducting the mission rather than the after impact of the mission? I think our military officers who are resident in Saudi Arabia are seeing how the Saudis approach uh, this, this effort, the targeting but effort. But, you know, obviously the proof is in the results, and we don't know whether results are there or not. Is that I, a fair statement? I think we, we do see a difference in how the Saudis have operated in Yemen. I understand and how have. they operate, but we don't know whether, in fact, that's been effective. The United Nations Security Council panel of experts on Yemen concluded in recent reports that the cumulative effect of these airstrikes on civilian infrastructure demonstrates that even with precaution, precautionary measures were taken, they were largely inadequate and ineffective. Do you have any information that disagrees with that assessment? Senator, I think the assessment of uh, our central command uh, is that the Saudi uh, and Emirati uh, targeting efforts uh, have improved um, uh, with the steps that they have taken. We do not have perfect understanding because we're not using all of our assets to monitor their aircraft, but we do get reporting from the ground uh, on what is taking place uh, inside Yemen. I understand that, and I would just caution you to be reserved as to how effective you are in that if you don't have direct information about it. This is the U.S. reputation as at online, and we expect you to know if you report something. If you can't report it, fine, but don't make statements that you can't back up. That's be my caution to the way you advertise it. I want to ask one other question, if I might, on Iran's influence. How effective have we been in and stopping the Iranian influence in that region. It seems like they're extremely active. I think it's extraordinarily difficult, um, given the breadth of Iran's uh, access throughout the region um, and how aggressive the Iranians have been uh, over many, many years uh, to put in place surrogates uh, and access and influence. Uh, and so we're not effective? No, I think we are increasingly effective. Uh, the United States cannot do it alone. Um, and uh, in uh, the case of Yemen, we are trying to help our partners better combat. So we Iran's think influence. the Iranians are less effective in supporting the Houthis today than they were three months ago or six months ago or a year ago. I, I think we are uh, we are getting better uh, at mobilizing an international effort to put pressure on Iran. Are we better today than a year ago with the Iranians? Um, I think the Iranians are under more pressure today. Uh, but their ability to operate remains a significant uh, point of concern for the United States. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Paul. Thank you for your testimony. Am Ambassador Satterfield, I guess some people 
when they think about our strategy, might question the idea of our strategy. You know, if, if your son was shooting off his pistol in the backyard and doing it indiscriminately and endangering the neighbors, would you give him more bullets or less? And we see the Saudis acting in an indiscriminate manner. They've bombed funeral processions. They've killed a lot of civilians. And so our strategy is to give them more bombs, not less. And we say, well, if we don't give them the bomb, somebody else will. And that's sort of this global strategy uh, that many in the bipartisan foreign policy consensus have. We have, to, we have to always be involved. We always have to provide weapons or someone else will, and they'll act even worse. But there's, a, I guess, a lot of examples that doesn't seem to be improving their behavior. Um, you can argue it's marginally better since we've been giving them more weapons, but it seems the opposite of logic. You would think you would give people less, or you might withhold aid or withhold uh, assistance to the Saudis to get them to behave. But we do sort of the opposite. We give them more aid. What would your response be to that? Uh, Senator, when I noted in my remarks that progress had been made on this issue of targeting, minimizing, or mitigating civilian casualties, that phrase was carefully chosen. And to elaborate further on uh, my colleague's remarks, uh, Robert Karam, we do work with the Saudis and have, particularly over the last six to nine months, worked intensively on the types of munitions the Saudis are using, how they are using, how to discriminate target sets, how to assure through increased loiter time by aircraft, that the targets sought are indeed clear of collateral or civilian damage. This is new. This is not the type of interaction yet that the overall, with the Saudis yeah. during the time and, when those And yet the overall situation in Yemen is a, is a disaster. The and, overall uh, situation is extremely bad, right. Senator. So I guess that's really my question. We ought to rethink, and I think from a common sense point of view, a lot of people would question giving people who misbehave more weapons instead of giving them less. On another question, which I think is a broad question about, you know, what we are doing in the Middle East in general, um, you admitted that there's not really a military solution in Yemen. Most people say it's going to be a political solution. The Houthis will still remain. We're not going to have uh, Hiroshima. We're not going to have unconditional surrender and the good guys win and the bad guys are vanquished. Same with Syria. Most people have said for years, both the Obama administration and this administration, probably even the Bush administration, this situation will probably be a political solution. They will no longer, it's not going to be complete vanquishment of the enemy. We're also saying that in Afghanistan. And I guess my point as I think about that is I think about the recruiter at the station in Omaha, Nebraska, trying to get somebody to sign up for the military and saying, please join. We're going to send you to three different wars where there is no military solution. We're hoping to make it maybe a little bit better. I think back to Vietnam. Oh, we're going to take one more village. If we take one more village, they're going to negotiate. And we get a little bit better negotiation. I just can't see sending our young men and women to die for that, for one more village. You know, the Taliban have 40% in Afghanistan. What are we going to give? When they get to 30%, they'll negotiate, and we're, it'll, be, it'll have been worth it for the people who have to go in and die and take those villages? I don't think it's one more life. I don't think it's worth one more life. The war in Yemen's not ours. We talk all about the Iranians have launched hundreds of missiles. Well, yeah, and the Saudis have launched 16,000 attacks. Who started it? It's a little bit murky back and forth. The, the Houthis may have started taking over their government, but that was a civil war. Now we're involved in it. Who are the good guys? Are the Saudis the good guys? Are the others the bad guys? Thousands of civilians are dying. 17 million people live on the edge of starvation. I think we need to rethink whether or not military intervention 
supplying the Saudis with weapons, whether all of this makes any sense at all or whether we've made the situation worse. I mean, humanitarian crisis, we're talking about, oh, we're going to give them money. The Saudis are giving them money. And I'm like, okay, so we, draw, we bomb the crap out of them, then the Saudis give them a billion dollars. Maybe we could bomb less. Maybe part of the humanitarian answer is supplying less weapons to a war. There's a huge arms race going on. Why do the Iranians do what they do? They're evil. Well, or maybe they're responding to the Saudis. Who responded first? Who started it? Where did the arms race start? But if we sell $300 billion of weapons to Saudi Arabia, what are the Iranians going to do? They react. It's action and reaction throughout the Middle East. And so we paint the Iranians as the, you know, these evil monster, and we just have to correct the evil monster. But the world's a much more complicated place, back and forth. And uh, all I would ask is that we try to get outside our mindset that we, uh, what we're doing is working, because I think what we're doing hasn't worked, and we've made a lot of things worse, and we're partly responsible for the humanitarian uh, crisis in Yemen. I like making a small speech. That was very small by Senate standards, but thank you. Uh, Senator Menendez. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary uh, Karam, I, I, after hearing their answers to Senator Cardin's line of questioning, I come to the conclusion that uh, we're not measuring success in a way that's meaningful. If you don't know what civilian casualties are, we don't measure it, as General Vortel says, uh, and you said, yes, we don't track all civilian casualties from, Sa uh, casualties from Saudi operations, but we've seen them improve targeting behavior. Well, that in and of itself is not a way to define me a measurement of how we're succeeding in reducing civilian casualties. So, uh, so I, I find that uh, uh, pretty alarming. It's information I wish I had known before. Let me ask uh, uh, Secretary Scatterfield, uh, why has the administration uh, not used Katzer authority to impose sanctions on Iran for its weapons transfers to the Houthis? We have sanctioned extensively all of the Iranian entities and individuals who are associated with the proliferating behaviors uh, that include the transfer of weaponry, you have the not, enablement you, of weapons. I, that's a very, uh, the, telling me about all the ways we've sanctioned Iran, of course, I'm very familiar with that. But the administration has, can you cite to me the specific cats or authority that was used to sanction Iran for weapons transfers to the Houthis? Senator, they were sanctioned under other extant authorities. Uh, I'd like you to submit that for the record for we me. We can do that, See Senator. what that is. Uh, do you believe that U.S. support for coalition bombings in Yemen have been an effective way to counter Iranian influence uh, in the region? I believe that the support we have provided to the Saudi-led coalition has advanced the Saudis' ability to defend themselves against Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps-enabled Houthi launches into the heartland of Saudi Arabia. Yes, sir. So, so helping the Saudis is how we in part counter Iranian influence is what you're telling me. It is indeed so. Let me ask you, the Secretary Mattis recently said that U.S. policy is calibrated to achieve a negotiated settlement in Yemen. I'd like to understand more about this calibration. There are reports that the Saudi coalition will soon start operations to seize the port of Hudaydah, the main port for humanitarian and commercial goods into Yemen. Would this operation accelerate prospects for a political solution, in your view? 
from it the would not, Senator, and we have been exceedingly clear uh, with the governments of Saudi Arabia as well as the Emirates. Will the administration provide military support to the coalition if it starts operations to seize the port? We have made clear that the port is to be left fully operational. Uh, other than the rhetorical support for a negotiated settlement, what's the administration specifically doing to facilitate a negotiated settlement? Senator, over the course of the past year, but particularly since October of last year, we have worked extensively with the United Nations, with the Saudis, with the Emiratis, as well as with all Yemeni parties to try to establish the basis for a resumption of talks, the talks that collapsed in 2016. The political picture on the ground in Yemen has changed radically with the death, the killing of uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, with the fragmentation of the General People's Congress. All of that, while tragic in many of its dimensions, has provided a certain reshuffling of the deck that may, we hope, allow the United Nations to be more effective in its efforts. But throughout this, we have underscored to all the parties, the Saudis and the Emiratis in particular, the UN must have the ability to conduct negotiations as it chooses, with those whom it chooses and where it chooses, to try to advance political settlement, and we will provide all possible support for that. So we're depending upon the UN to be the solution to this process. The international community has placed its support in the United Nations as the best party positioned and the to try to broker a resolution. And the administration endorses that UN process. We do indeed, Senator. Okay, it's a new, new day for the UN and the United States. Now, let me ask you this. While significant culpability is attributable to the Saudi coalition for the role in the deepening humanitarian crisis in Yemen, the Houthis also bear responsibility. Do you agree with that? I do, sir. In your view, what actions have the Houthis undertaken in Yemen that block humanitarian access and violate international humanitarian law? Senator, the Houthis routinely predate aid deliveries coming through land crossings as well as through the ports of Hodeidah and Salif. By predation, I mean a variety of measures, skimming, removing, looting aid from convoys, taking taxes repeatedly from the drivers and personnel of the convoys. The Houthis profit mightily from all commercial as well as humanitarian goods that enter Yemen from any sources. The Houthis, in addition, control the telecommunications networks of Yemen from which they also extract revenues. They are a predatory body, but they're also part of the political situation and must be part of the political solution. And finally, have the Houthis demonstrated commitment or will to proceed with a negotiated settlement of the conflict, to, to your knowledge? The Houthis have told the United Nations, they have told other parties, that they do wish to participate in a political resolution. It is the testing of that proposition that is the challenge before the United Nations and all of us. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, they say the most dangerous person in Washington is a senator that just returned from a fact-finding mission overseas. More dangerous is a senator who has a Yemeni out in the ante room that he's been talking to all morning and all along. So a lot of things I'm going to act, I ask, I'm going to act like I know what I'm talking about, and I think I do, but I have a young lady out there who works for CARE USA, which is headquartered in Georgia, who's been working with me on this, and I've, some of the things I want to bring out I think will help answer some of the questions that have been referred to by these gentlemen. And number one, Apparently, the number, there, are 20, there are about 22 million Yemenis who are in need of aid, either medical aid or, or nutritional aid or some type of other assistance and aid, and there are only 26 million people there, so it's almost 90% of the population. Would you agree with that? Anybody? Is that about right? Yes. All the numbers that we have for Yemen are 
imprecise given okay. the situation. And, and we look at about 29 million people as the full population, and over 76 of them need uh, humanitarian assistance. Whatever the number is, it's big, and it's the vast majority of the country. And the port is the biggest single problem in getting humanitarian aid into Yemen. Is that not correct? We've been calling on all parties to make sure that they ha we can have free and unfettered access through all roads and all ports, but Hudaydah Port is the primary point of access for up to 80% of the cargo that goes into the country. I'm told it is the biggest problem, and it's getting bigger. It's, it's getting not getting bigger, bigger, sir. In fact, the, the worst moment came in November of last year when there was a coalition-led, uh, coalition-enforced closure of the Red Sea ports. Since then, we have seen improvements. There's, way to, there's a ways to go, but uh, things have been improving as of late. Mr. Kareem. At the end of the long speech made by Senator Paul, who I have great respect for, we disagree on certain things, but he was making a good speech. I enjoyed it. But he didn't ask a question, so I want to ask a question following up on what he said. He was basically saying we've, we've fought a lot of, we've sent a lot of our soldiers into battle and, and battles that we, winning or losing didn't make any difference because we never finished the, the drill. And that we have in, in Afghanistan and we have in Yemen and we have other soldiers deployed right now who are in battles that we're not going to win, but we're going to just at some time bring to a draw. Is that a fair way to say it? Is there any other way to get a recalcitrant people or a people who are working against political solutions to the table other than a military challenge if you don't have a military challenge to force them to the table? I mean, I think you have to use all elements of power to bring people to the negotiating table. Um, sometimes that will be predominantly military. Sometimes it can be financial. Sometimes it can be diplomatic. Um, uh, and in the case of Yemen, I think all of these things probably apply. Uh, but I think there's a difference between uh, Afghanistan, where the United States uh, has tens of thousands of, of soldiers who are supporting the Afghan government, uh, and Yemen, where we are not a party uh, to the conflict and are not engaged in uh, hostilities except for uh, our, our relatively narrow counterterrorism efforts. But there's no question, and at least I'm speaking for myself now, that at some point in time when you get to solving the problems of conflict overseas, that, that we're in one way or other, or, or observe one way or another through the UN, that some ability for military force to be an effective force to bring about a solution helps you get to the table to get a diplomatic solution rather than any of having a war to solve it, or worse than that, some kind of civil war to solve it. Uh, yes, I, I agree, and more importantly, all of the parties who are fighting in Yemen uh, believe with. What is the uh, background of the UN Special Envoy that just been named? Is it, is it an American? No, he is a UK national senator. He has been involved throughout his life in international peace work, uh, a variety of institutions, most of them in the UK, who bring together negotiators, work on international solutions to problems like this. We, we need to give him and the UN the help and encouragement we can to get that done because ultimately that's going to, you know, special envoys usually are an alternative to solving the problem. They just say we did something like what happened in South Sudan and the PCA there in General Gratian. But I hope we'll work to in every way possible move them forward at the UN and move the special envoy forward to help bring that to a conclusion. That's our intent, sir. And just on behalf of the USAID people, I mean the uh, CARE USA people are out in the ante room and my friends from Atlanta. US, uh, CARE does a tremendous humanitarian NGO mission all over the world in lots of places and they're doing a tremendous one in Yemen. It's awful, it's horrible when you get a situation where they can't even get well-intended aid of med and medical supplies to the people who need it 
because we don't have enough security to even get them that access. And I've been to Darfur and seen what that can mean, and it's horrible. So I hope we'll do everything we can to get the NGOs that are trying to get the aid to the 23 million Yemenis who are in deep trouble nutritionally and health-wise to them as quickly and expeditiously as possible. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing, and thank you to our witnesses for being here to testify and for your efforts to address the crisis in Yemen, which has truly taken a horrific toll on millions of innocent men and women there, and particularly children. I'm disappointed that the Senate has not yet made a decisive statement about the need to influence Saudi-led operations and to protect those innocent civilians in Yemen. I think it's long past time we send a message to the leadership of Saudi Arabia that we have high expectations for our allies, particularly those who are receiving military support. So, Ambassador Satterfield, do you believe that the Saudi-led coalition is engaged in urgent and good faith efforts to negotiate an end to the civil war in Yemen? Senator, the Saudi-led coalition, primarily Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, uh, accept at the highest levels uh, the proposition that there is only ultimately a political solution to this conflict. And that was reiterated most recently by uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman during his visits here in Washington. Um, we operationally uh, tried to implement that rhetorical understanding in terms of the active support which the UN needs from both the Emirates and the Saudis for their mission to be successful. Now, over the course of the past six months, uh, from a crisis point in October, November, when things looked very dark indeed, we have indeed seen a more receptive approach by the Saudis, by the Emiratis, certainly, uh, to this concept of supporting, genuinely supporting and facilitating the UN's mediating efforts. Yes. Well, thank you. I'm, that's good to hear. Mr. Jenkins, you talked about pledges, I think you said, from the UAE and the Saudis. Did you mention anyone else? Of a billion dollars in aid. Has any of that aid actually been forthcoming to date? Yes, thank you for the question. So on April 3rd in Geneva was a pledging conference where over $2 billion was pledged against the $3 billion that the United Nations is looking for for this year. Of that, Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE pledged $920 million, and as of this week, all of that has arrived within the bank accounts of the United Nations, which we're very happy to see. Kuwait also pledged a significant amount, as, long, as well as the UK and the EU. All of this is very heartening for us as we look at the vast needs to see that now with all the pledges when they come in, that's, that's two-thirds of the appeal. This long into the year, that's very heartening. However, there's going to be continue to be great need and need for more assistance. And how long is it going to take to get that aid out into the field so it's helping people? So we're very thankful, particularly because the Saudis and the Emirates have provided all of this money to the United Nations Office of the Coordinator of Humanitarian Assistance, UNOCHA. UNOCHA is now going to disperse it among the various UN agencies, which, which they'll do very, very quickly. Um, I think you all talked about the importance of a political solution in Yemen as being the ultimate goal. 
And Ambassador Satterfield, you talked about the Houthis needing to be part of any negotiation. Who else needs to be at the table in order for a political solution to really work? Senator, I've, I have over the past 40 years seen many complex, almost Hobbesian uh, crises uh, in the Middle East. And I have to tell you, the Yemen situation is one of the most complex in terms of the numbers of parties, sub-parties, and then fundamental internal divisions, the South, the North, the legacy right. of the 93 uh, forced reunification, all of them in one way or another are going to need to have a voice, are going to need to be represented. The Houthis are but one, in the North, a very significant one, but one of those parties. Mr. Jenkins, um, Secretary Karim, who else do you think should be at the table in addition to the Houthis and the Yemenis? I would echo what UN Secretary General Gutierrez has said, is what is necessary right now is a dialogue across Yemeni across Yemen, an intra-Yemen dialogue that can help support a larger peace negotiation. And, and who's we, gonna lead that dialogue? Well, we're looking, we're very happen, happy that Martin Griffiths has started his work. We think he needs time and space to uh, show results, and we wanna be as supportive as we can across the interagency of his efforts. Secretary Kareem. I, I agree with the uh, Secretary Satterfield and, and Mr. Jenkins, um, that you are going to need to bring a number of parties resident inside Yemen together. Um, and then there are also the external uh, players who uh, I think are already in touch um, with Mr. Uh, Mr. Griffin. So does that include Iran as being one of the players at the table to negotiate? I've seen precious little evidence that Iran is interested in a negotiated solution in uh, Yemen or in Syria or elsewhere. And do we think that the Houthis will actually negotiate in good faith if they continue to believe that Iran is going to support them in their activities? Senator, our policy has been premised on two things. The first, creating that all-encompassing, all-embracing political process in which the Houthis do have a voice and will participate in the outcome as well. The second is to curtail, constrain, mitigate, roll back the extraordinary Iranian support being provided to the Houthis directed at Saudi Arabia, it only emboldens a party not to negotiate as effectively as possible. So we're working on both those lines at once. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chief. Senator Young, and, and before going to him, since you brought up uh, uh, this hearing is in response to requests by members, we will mark up before the Memorial Day holiday, we will mark up the bill that y'all put put forth. Thank you for your leadership on that and uh, and and on the AUMF itself. And uh, know that from my perspective, it's getting in a very, very good place. We thank y'all for working with both of us and for taking leadership on making sure we do speak strongly, as you mentioned, uh, Senator Young. Secretary Satterfield, I'd like to pick up on uh, Senator Menendez's line of questioning about uh, the administration's support uh, for the coalition uh, should an attack occur on the port of Hodeida. Um, I, I, you, you didn't respond directly to that answer. You, you indicated you've uh, repeatedly encouraged, uh, the United States has repeatedly encouraged the Saudis, the Emiratis, and other members of the coalition not to strike the port of Hodeida. Is our support conditional 
upon a non-attack on the port of Hodeida? Yes or no, sir? Senator, we have, I'll be quite explicit. We have told the Emirates and the Saudis there is to be no action undertaken that could threaten the ports of that Hodeida like and Salif or any routes to and from the port for delivery of assistance. Will our support continue should uh, the Saudis or Emiratis bomb the port of Hodeida? We would not view such an action as consistent with our own policy upon which our support is based. Will our support continue should the Saudis or Emiratis or no, another member of the coalition bomb the port of Hodeida? Senator, you are posing, with all due respect, a hypothetical. We would have to see the circumstances in order to give a response to that question beyond what I have already told you. So it's not conditional. Uh, our support would not be conditional on, on the, the uh, continued allowance of food, fuel, medical supplies, and other humanitarian assistance into the primary port of Yemen. Senator, I, you and I have, have talked back have in indeed. those dark days of October and early November when we told the Saudis explicitly that if there was not an immediate lifting and a sustained lifting of any constraints on access through Hodeida and Salif port, not just to humanitarian goods, but to commercial goods as well, that it would be exceedingly difficult to maintain the type of support for the coalition that had existed. And that view has not changed. I'll continue. Mr. Jenkins, uh, your testimony is compelling. You put forward a number of facts and figures, which I'd, I'd like you to underscore. Perhaps I can elicit a few more. This will go very quickly, but I think it's very important for all listeners uh, to fully appreciate uh, the gravity of the situation in Yemen. Approximately how many people, Mr. Jenkins, require humanitarian assistance in Yemen? 22 million people. What percent of the population is that? Approximately 75%. Was the number of people requiring humanitarian assistance increased from last year? It increased by, or we're estimating, 3.5 million people. And how much has it increased? About 3.5 million people. Is, how, yeah. Okay. How many are severely food insecure? 17.8 million. How many children are severely malnourished? 460,000. How many people lack access to clean water and working toilets? We estimate it to be around 16 million people. Does Yemen face the largest cholera outbreak in the world? It does. How many cholera cases have we seen in Yemen? A suspected over uh, 1 million cases. And how many lives has that cholera outbreak claimed? Almost uh, 2,300. And Ambassador Satterfield, do you agree with Mr. Jenkins' assessment, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen? Absolutely, sir. So when we confront such horrible humanitarian su suffering, uh, I think we feel a moral imperative to act. I certainly do. Uh, Mr. Jenkins, in your prepared statement, you go further than that, echoing testimony of David Beasley, Matt Nims, and others. You write, we have a national security imperative to do all we can to alleviate the humanitarian suffering in Yemen. Mr. Jenkins, very briefly, why do you believe we have a national security imperative to alleviate this humanitarian crisis? So when USAID provides humanitarian assistance, we are projecting both the generosity and also uh, what our government and, and people are all about. We do that because it's the right thing to do, but also because it does protect our national security to make sure that these places are stabilized, that deaths are kept at a minimum, and that uh, 
that suffering is alleviated. So on March 14, I convened a subcommittee hearing on why food security matters. I encouraged anyone interested uh, in, the, in the Yemen and food security issues to review the transcript of that hearing or, or the video of that hearing. Uh, the hearing made clear there's a strong evidentiary and scholarly basis to conclude it's in America's clear national security interest to address food insecurity, uh, among other types of, of, you know, whether it's medical aid and so forth. Retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Castlelaw uh, uh, testified at that hearing that food crises grow terrorists. Mr. Jenkins, do you agree we should expect all parties to the conflict to undertake measures to alleviate the humanitarian crisis in Yemen by increasing access for Yemenis to food, fuel, and medicine, including through Yemen's Red Sea ports, the airport in Sana'a, and external border crossings? Absolutely. And to be clear, does that include the Saudis? Absolutely. Ambassador Satterfield, you write in your prepared statement, quote, the administration shares your belief that ending the conflict in Yemen is in our national security interests. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, based on this administration position, do you believe we should expect all parties of the conflict to undertake an urgent and good faith effort to conduct diplomatic negotiations to end the civil war in Yemen? We do, sir. And should that include the Saudis, sir? Absolutely, it should. Okay, and then lastly, Ambassador Satterfield, in your prepared statement, you emphasize the importance of adhering to the law of armed conflict, including the obligation to take all feasible precautions to reduce the risk of harm to civilians. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, do you agree it's important and appropriate for the U.S. to continue to press the Saudi-led coalition to take the demonstrable action to reduce the risk of harm to civilians and civilian infrastructure resulting from its military operations in Yemen? I do, sir. All right, thank you, sir. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, uh, for holding this important hearing uh, on the world's greatest humanitarian crisis caused by the ongoing conflict in Yemen. And I'd like to thank uh, our three witnesses, both uh, for appearing before the committee uh, and for your service uh, in this difficult uh, challenge confronting us with so many other pressing challenges uh, in the Middle East, uh, not just this crisis in Yemen, but also uh, our military action against Syria over the weekend. I'm just going to echo what Senator Menendez said at the outset, that it is more important than ever that the administration uh, formulate and deliver a comprehensive strategy uh, to the Congress and the American people so that we can better engage with and understand and judge what is the path forward in terms of uh, confronting and restraining Iran's aggressive behavior, which I think is a central cause of this ongoing conflict uh, in Yemen uh, and is a critical driver of Bashar al-Assad's uh, barbarism in Syria. Um, and I will um, insist that we need to hear more from the president and his team represented here by way of a comprehensive strategy in the near future. Um, but let's today continue to drill down on some of the specifics in this particular <laughs> conflict, if we could. Humanitarian access. First, Senator Young um, asked a number of questions uh, admirably. He's been very engaged on the issue of humanitarian access through ports. Let me just add, if I could, a question about the closure of Sana'a's airport uh, because of military strikes led by uh, the Saudi coalition, uh, Sana'a's airport has largely been closed to humanitarian relief and assistance and to those who might seek to leave uh, for uh, military, excuse me, for medical um, purposes. How can we address Saudi Arabia's uh, legitimate security concerns around that airport and its uh, use uh, for the importation of weapons while at the same time making it possible for civilians uh, trapped in Houthi-controlled areas uh, to get medical care, to get food, to get clean water? Ambassador Satterfield, if you'd start us off. Senator, you've singled out uh, exactly the reasons why uh, Sana'a Airport should be fully opened for movements in and out, not just for humanitarian, so labeled, 
purposes, but general purposes as well. How best to assure that the genuine concerns of Saudi Arabia are met? There are a variety of regimes that have been put successfully in place to, uh, for lack of a better word, sterilize or assure that cargoes and people moving in and out of the airport are what they ought to be without significantly diminishing the ability of the airport to function. We, the United Nations, have repeatedly proposed uh, such regimes. Some have worked partially. The airport has a greater level of operation today than it did if we go back to uh, early and mid-November, but more needs to be done. And we believe the mechanisms are out there, the UN is willing to participate in them, and we think they can be made to work. Thank you for that answer. Let me um, talk just a little bit more about water shortages, as, as, as several of you have spoken to. Uh, both the Houthis and the Saudis have blocked uh, deliveries of water uh, to civilians and destroyed water infrastructure, which has in large part contributed to water scarcity, uh, to the world's greatest cholera outbreak. Um, do you believe access to and control over water is one of the drivers of the conflict in Yemen? Um, and how does that exacerbate the humanitarian crisis, and what can we best do uh, to tackle the access to clean water challenges? Senator, in Yemen, uh, control over water resources is not one of the primary drivers of the conflict. Yemen is blessed with a variety of water supplies not found elsewhere in the Middle East. The problem with water, and I'll defer to my colleague from AID, is the elimination of reliable electricity supplies uh, to purification of water treatment plants, appropriate sewage disposal. It's a very basic phenomenon, but it stems from restrictions on electricity delivery, which in turn are the product of some damage to transmittal lines, but more importantly, lack of consistent supplies of affordable fuel. Mr. Jenkins. The ambassador nailed it on that one. Uh, basically, when you see or hear in Yemen about fuel not getting to where it needs to go, that immediately correlates itself to people not being able to pump the water that they need, mm -hmm. not being able to fuel the generators that keep uh, the lights on in hospitals, and water is a critical, critical problem for the humanitarian situation. Let me ask if I might one last question. Um, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, uh, has been cited um, as one of the more lethal uh, terrorist organizations in the world. Um, do you think AQAP is a greater threat to the United States now than it was at the beginning of the conflict back in September of 2015? Have we had any successes in degrading their capabilities? And most importantly, I think, from a security perspective, Given the quote uh, Senator Young just shared with us that food crises grow terrorists, what about our uh, alignment, our strategy, our engagement uh, might make us less secure today as a result of the conduct of the last three years? Senator, as you know, we had a, a relatively sizable presence in Yemen prior to the conflict focused with the legitimate government of Yemen in going after AQAP because of the specific threat it poses to the homeland. Um, that presence and our activities were significantly undermined. Um, by the collapse of the government and the outbreak of civil war in 2014 and 2015. Uh, we have made strides in reconstituting our efforts um, through our local partnerships, first with the legitimate government of Yemen as well as with other partner forces who are on the ground. Um, but AQAP remains a significant threat. They have benefited from the civil war that has created open territory and uh, safe areas for them. Um, but as the Emiratis in particular have made progress in helping the government of Yemen maintain control in certain areas, it has denied uh, more area to AQAP. We nevertheless have continued to, to, to have to take a number of strikes 
against uh, this uh, very significant terrorist uh, threat, and so it remains a challenge, um, but uh, we are making progress. Thank you. All I'll say in conclusion is it's clearly both in our humanitarian interest and in our national security interest to reach a resolution of this conflict as soon as is possible. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses for your testimony. Uh, in the briefing documents that we were given for this hearing today, a, a comment is made, as the war continues, the risk of it spreading beyond Yemeni territory appears to be growing. You would agree with that, Ambassador Satterfield? Only in the sense that Iranian proliferation, which is taking advantage of this conflict, is a broader threat than just in Yemen. Secretary Karim, would you agree with that? I agree with Ambassador Satterfield. Uh, in a letter from, I think, General Counsel William Castle, acting, uh, excuse me, Department of Defense acting General Counsel uh, to Senators Schumer and McConnell, uh, was talking about the extent of U.S. involvement. Um, and uh, to quote the letter, the United States provides the KSA-led coalition defense articles and services, including air-to-air -air refueling, certain intelligence support and military advice, including advice regarding compliance with the law of armed conflict and best practices for reducing the risk of civilian casualties. Is this the extent of our involvement? It's the extent of our involvement with respect to the support of the coalition's efforts in uh, the Civil War. We obviously have uh, uh, provide different support with respect to CT operations using different authorities. Ambassador Satterfield. We provide a variety of humanitarian as well as political support uh, and engagement. But yes, it's an accurate accounting of our military support and intel support for the coalition. What's a, what's a ballpark uh, personnel figure that we have right now involved uh, with Yemen? Uh, Secretary Satterfield. Uh, I believe we have uh, roughly 50 personnel uh, in Saudi Arabia, but they're conducting a variety of activities, including, uh, I think, largely helping on uh, the ballistic missile threat. Thank you. Ambassador Satterfield, I was late to the hearing. We uh, schedule hearings around here at the same exact time, so I had a couple of other hearings to attend prior to joining this one. Um, Ambassador Satterfield, so you may have done this already. Could you just lay out quickly uh, our administration's goals as it relates to the conflict in Yemen? Our goals are to facilitate, uh, primarily through support for the United Nations, but also through our own direct engagement with key Yemeni parties, with the Saudis, with the Emiratis, a comprehensive political resolution, or a process which has the prospect of producing such a resolution, and in that process reduces the level of conflict. It is also a policy goal to limit, roll back, uh, Iranian influence and projection of Iranian force through the Revolutionary Guard Corps, particularly in the form of support for Houthi challenges to Saudi sovereignty. Uh, Secretary Karim, I think you had made a comment. I'm going to make sure I get it right here, and so you can correct me if I'm wrong. You said there's precious little evidence that Iran is interested in any kind of a settlement. Is that kind of paraphrase what you said? Uh, yes, although I would really say Iran benefits from continuing the conflict. They are fueling the conflict as they are in Syria and elsewhere. So, Ambassador Satterfield, given what Secretary Karim has said and our objectives, we don't really seem to be gaining anywhere at this point. We have, in fact, uh, a more promising political scene in Yemen today. We believe it is a better prospect for the new UN uh, Special Envoy, Martin Griffiths, to work in. We see a greater degree of Emirati and Saudi support, genuine support, being proffered for him than was the case a year ago with his predecessor. On the Iranian side, we are working actively to address the ability of the Iranians to proliferate, particularly missiles, uh, into Houthi hands. 
that is an ongoing process uh, which we hope can bear fruit in the not distant future. The United Nations report recently said that the authority of the legitimate government of Yemen has now eroded to the point that it is doubtful whether it will ever be able to reunite Yemen as a single country. Do you agree with that? The future of Yemen on that macro level, single country, two states as it was prior to 1993, is a matter for Yemenis to decide and undoubtedly will be one of the issues addressed in any comprehensive peace process. It's one of the issues which the UN has been grappling with. Uh, but more fundamentally than that meta question is the simple issue of how do you construct a political process that brings and keeps all of the parties, including the Houthis, in the game, offers them a stake in the outcome of the game, and sees through the process a diminishing of the level of violence and disruption to civilian life. That's the challenge. Ambassador, you mentioned proliferation. Could you uh, describe for me the uh, entities inside Iran that are engaged in weapons proliferation? Actually, better question is, uh, have they been designated or sanctioned under the May 2012 Yemen executive order? They have indeed, sir. It is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and the associated entities working 